I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. On this episode of Newt's World, President Joe Biden met with President Xi Jinping of the People's Republic of China in Bali, Indonesia, on November 14th. According to the White House, quote, the two leaders spoke candidly about their respective priorities and intentions across a range of issues. President Biden said that the U.S. will continue to compete vigorously with China, including by investing in sources of strength at home and aligning efforts with allies and partners around the world, end quote. I wanted to discuss what seemed to really happen behind closed doors in this meeting. The meeting follows the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party from October 16th through 22nd, 2022, much of which was not reported broadly in the press. Here to provide guidance to the events of this last several weeks, I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest, Dr. Weifeng Zhang. He is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He also runs the Policy Change Index Project, which uses machine learning to read large volumes of propaganda text. The project has produced algorithms to predict China's major policy changes. Weifeng, thank you for joining us again on Newt's World. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, for having me. You know, on November 14th, President Biden met with Xi Jinping. From your perspective, what came of the meeting? For a while now, I think meetings like this were not supposed to produce anything concrete anyway. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that both Chinese leaders and U.S. leaders now are pretty clear that the days when, you know, a romantic engagement with China was you know, all good, those days were long gone. And so I think it's good that President Biden met with President Xi. I think diplomacy is good, but I don't think just meeting in itself would achieve much anyway. I may be overly influenced by the techniques of negotiating with North Korea 
and North Vietnam and the behavior at times of the Soviets. But I was very struck when President Biden initially met with Xi Jinping in public that Biden walked all the way across the stage and Xi Jinping didn't move at all. Now, I may have been wrong, but I can tell you from the North Korean and North Vietnamese experiences, that would have been seen symbolically as a major victory. I think you are right. I didn't notice that. But another aspect I thought President Biden scored some point was the position, you know, in terms of left versus right between President Xi and President Biden. The Chinese leaders, they always love to be the one on the right when you're looking at the photo. So then their right hand extends naturally. And then the one who's weaker will be on the left in the photo when you look at the photo. And then the right hand will be a little bit awkward coming across. So this time I noticed that President Xi was actually on the left. So I guess I would say maybe half and half in terms of the optics of the meeting of the photo ops itself. Well, you may remember that both in the long negotiations in Panmunjom and the negotiations in Paris, Panmunjom with the North Koreans and the Chinese and then Paris with the North Vietnamese, they had these huge arguments about the height of the chairs <laughs> and you know, trying to make sure that everybody got to be the right height. All of this seemed to be symbolically very important psychologically, so I just didn't know. So I'm curious, did your policy change index pick up anything from the Biden-Xi meeting? It did not. In fact, something quite strange, I think, it makes a lot of sense if you think back, is that the policy change index has not registered any significant changes for a little bit over a year now, which means that if you look at the People's Daily, which is China's version of Pravda, the most prominent mouthpiece of the Communist Party, for the last year, the behavior in terms of what they emphasize and what they do not emphasize is consistently well-behaved, which means that the leadership of the Chinese president is pretty solid and it was not going to change course, whether or not it's because of the party congress or whether or not the meeting with the American president goes well. It was not going to make any significant changes. As I understand it, the way your index works, you are able to actually scan huge volumes of material and then have various systems develop algorithms about what kind of marginal changes there are over time. I mean, is that a reasonable summary? Yes, absolutely. So if you think of, for example, zero COVID policy in China, which is hugely disruptive, but if you ask the question, is China going to change anytime soon in a significant way? Now, that requires, before the government changes that, to educate or at least to justify to the public, why are we changing it now, right? We were so strict about zero COVID, why all of a sudden we need to change course? And we have not seen any of that kind of change in talking point. So that indicates that actual change in action is not coming anytime soon. You make an interesting point again, because my background was originally with the Soviets. It seems to me that the modern... Chinese Communist Party is much more sensitive to the need to communicate and mold public opinion than the Soviets were. I mean, the Soviets basically had an attitude of, you know, we will tell you what you should think, and if you're confused, we'll shoot you. Whereas the Chinese Communists seem to have an attitude of, we'll tell you what you should think, and if you don't quite get it, we'll tell you again and again and again. Does that strike you as a reasonable analogy? Yeah, and I think there's an important reason to it. I think both countries, the Soviet Union and China, they relied on propaganda a lot. But the key difference is that it goes back to where the legitimacy of 
the Communist Party comes from, whether we're talking about the Soviet Union or China, is that in back in the Soviet days, the key was ideology. Right? People believe in Marxism or communism, and that lends credibility to the Communist Party. So even if you don't agree, they would just shoot you. Right? They wouldn't bother to explain. But it's different in China because nobody in China believes in communism anymore these days. The Communist Party's legitimacy comes down to its capability, most importantly, to deliver economic growth, right? And so a lot of policies would rely on explanations because you can't just say, you know, we are on the ideological or moral high ground so that everybody has to listen. They don't have to listen. Hence, you need to explain. So in that sense, it seems to me one of the great lessons that Claire Christensen and I got when we wrote our book on Trump and China was that Deng Xiaoping was really a profound break with Mao because I think Mao thought that the ideas mattered, and if you were confused about it, that they would send you back to correction camps or send you out to farms. But Deng had concluded that if they couldn't deliver prosperity, they would not survive, that the country would simply rebel. Right. And I think that has been the model ever since Deng Xiaoping, including his successors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. A little bit less under Hu Jintao's time, but Xi Jinping is a departure from the Deng model. And I think this is many U.S. leaders have pointed out over the years as well, that we are seeing a structural change in terms of how the Communist Party is ruling China. And I mean, if you think about it, this is not particularly good news for China, because when you are deviating from that model and when the economy is not doing well, you lose a lot of credibility or legitimacy. Right? So if you think about China today, the more I think about it, the more concerned I am about peace in the Taiwan Strait, because once you don't have any other sources of legitimacy, overtaking Taiwan might be Xi Jinping's last way out in terms of you know, regaining his authority inside the country. The other corollary to that, it seems to me, is that because of the sheer scale of their population, China is much more dangerous to govern than Russia. I mean, the Russian people have no tradition in the last four or 500 years of life being good. Most of them were serfs or peasants. Most of them were living in a society that had very difficult winters and where there was a very tiny elite dominating the entire country. But in China, I remember many years ago, I went back and read Chinese medieval novels, actually books that Mao Zedong had read. And what struck me was how, in a sense, Western they were. These were people who wanted to live well. They liked women. They wanted to drink. They wanted to make money. I mean, they were about humans being normal in a way that you don't find in a lot of Russian novels. At the same time, the capacity of the Chinese people to rebel has historically been enormous. And the Taiping Rebellion, as you know, probably killed something like 75 million people. When the Chinese leaders look at the danger of unrest, they're really looking at a radically different problem than the Russians. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think there's a sense in which Chinese people care about what we can loosely call relative deprivation, right? So you don't want to be deprived relative to other people, which makes income inequality a huge problem in China. But you also don't want to be deprived relative to your relatively better past, right? Think about the last 20 years. China was much better in terms of the economy than it is today. 
and also in terms of human freedom too. In, I grew up in China, Mr. Speaker, in the time when reform was the main theme. I went to college at the time when kids were able to check out fora at other universities in terms of like what they talked about, whether they complained about their food <laughs> or whatnot. But very quickly after President Hu Jintao took office, they shut down that channel too. I remember distinctively in the second year of my college time in 2004, after Hu came in, all of a sudden you couldn't look at what kids were talking about at Tsinghua University or Peking University, which I didn't go. But I was curious. You couldn't even see what they were talking about. So I think Chinese people now, they remember, they have lived through those years when things were relatively better. And so seeing how narrow the space is for civil society, I think people recognize that. And a lot of people in China complain about that. So if we think back at the great leap forward under Mao, Mao almost lost power briefly, right, because of the disastrous outcome of his policy. And we were talking about the great famine in China where, you know, millions of people die, right? Like you said, millions of people could die. And that at the time threatened the rule of the CCP. But nowadays, I don't think it would take that many people to die to threaten the rule of the CCP because now they have seen much better. Chinese people are not like the Soviets who did not see anything better. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'll confess up front, I'm one of those who thinks it's extraordinarily unlikely that the Chinese communists will invade Taiwan, very likely that they'll harass Taiwan. But what is your take? I mean, if you were looking out over the next 20 years, do you think it is likely that either current leadership, Xi Jinping or his successor, would actually take the risk of militarily trying to occupy Taiwan? I think I'm more pessimistic than you are, <laughs> Mr. Speaker. It's interesting that you thought the probability is very low. I thought it's much higher than you do. And I think it goes back to the reasoning we talked about. There's several ways communist parties derive legitimacy. There's what I call the salt and pepper, like decorational, which is like 
meeting with foreign leaders, especially those from、uh, more powerful countries, right? Having good photo ops, those would boost legitimacy by a little bit. And the Chinese, they do care about that a lot. Another was to pretend that you have some sort of a democratic institutions. So you have a party congress representative there; they get to vote. It's not real vote, but <laughs> they pretend to have a voting system. They pretend that Xi Jinping was actually elected by the members of the party. That also is salt and pepper because people in China they recognize that's not a real deal. So we're down to the sources of legitimacy being ideology or performance. I think the CCP is not doing well on ideology front because they don't have Marxism anymore, and so now they are sort of resorting to nationalism, the national identity, you know, the humiliation of. Decades of being invaded by foreign powers and all that—that's what Xi Jinping, his struggle, the concept of struggle, is talking about—is the humiliating past of the country. That's not doing as much. So the problem is that now, when you hype up the nationalism, a lot of people in China they are supportive of taking back Taiwan. If you think of the recent visit by Speaker Pelosi to Taiwan. Afterwards, China did some military exercise, right? Then, actually, there are people on the internet from mainland China complaining about not seeing anything more specific. They were like, "Oh, why, I mean, you said this is so humiliating to us, and why don't we just send troops over and take back the island?" People actually complain about the lack of delivery by the Chinese Communist Party. I think when you hype up that enough, now Xi Jinping will be cornered to at some point deliver. I think that's the, where the danger is. I see, and that could be, of course, a real disaster. Depending in part on what we do, absolutely. I think the best case scenario would be that China would take back Taiwan, in that best case scenario for the CCP. But even so, I think the economic cost to the Chinese economy would be huge, because at the minimum, Western powers would have to sanction China for a long time, right? And China would be practically separated from the world economy, which they are not right now, right? So. A new study that just came out today, as we speak, from、uh, CSIS by a couple of China scholars, they basically pointed out that economically speaking, even if China wins, even if China successfully reunited Taiwan, the economic cost will be huge to them. Both Republican Senator Tom Cotton and the Democratic Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner have called TikTok a Chinese surveillance tool. Are you willing to use TikTok, and how do you see TikTok? No, no way. I'm using TikTok. Not that I don't like the platform. I think the security risk is pretty well understood by the people who follow that. I think when we talk about TikTok, I think it's a good example to show that how partisan politics in the United States is hurting our security interests sometimes. Because when former President Trump was taking on this issue. Remember, some people on the left were attacking him for saying that oh, he was just going after TikTok because his campaign rally was you know people use TikTok to sort of boycott that so that people don't didn't buy the tickets to go to his rally, and that's why he's angry about TikTok. No, TikTok is a machine for the、uh, CCP to have information of foreigners who use that app. I think this is very clear, and now people are coming around to recognize that. But had we not had such a Divisive politics, we would have come around to tackle the issue much sooner. And I think TikTok or WeChat and other technology companies from China, they are posing a legitimate security threat to the United States. When you look at the initial scale of advantage that Google and Facebook and 
Amazon and others have, isn't it kind of just an interesting phenomenon that the Chinese came up with TikTok? There's no denying that some Chinese entrepreneurs, they have real innovations. Like I think TikTok as a platform per se, in terms of content wise, it's an innovation compared to Facebook or Twitter. It provides something that they just can't for people who have very short attention span and who likes videos. TikTok works much better than the other outlets. The problem is not about the format. It's about the security concerns that's hidden in the back end of these technologies, right? And I think that's what gets us. But the two fit together. I mean, if TikTok were boring and nobody used it, we wouldn't care that the Chinese can access it. On the other hand, if an American company had invented TikTok, we wouldn't be worried about the back end. So I think TikTok is a very interesting phenomenon, just as Huawei in the area of 5G is a remarkable achievement and a huge security threat to the Western world. Absolutely. I think that if you look at these companies, they are private companies. They're not state-owned. The same for Huawei as well. People accuse Huawei of having military ties. They don't even have formal military ties. But that doesn't matter in this day and age because it used to be that the state-owned sector and the private sector in China were fairly separated. I'm talking about the years when I was, for example, when I was in China, I remember in the 90s and 2000s, the line was pretty clear. But now it's very blurred because even if you're a private company, when the government asks for it, the companies will surrender information. We have seen that played out in the case of Huawei as well. There was evidence, this is from Bloomberg from early this year, early 2022, there's reporting apparently that 10 years ago, it was found in an Australian telecom carrier that used the Huawei devices that there was a bug in the software that would lead to the data being sent straight to Beijing. And the Australian intelligence agency found out about this and shared with the Americans. And that's why U.S. has been at Huawei for, you know, making the accusation at least for decades. And finally, we took very firm actions. Before that was known, people thought that, you know, Huawei just a pure cheap technology and using that would make us better off in terms of the economic benefits. That was true, but it's simply because we did not look at the security costs of that. Hmm. Did you see anything particularly significant coming out of the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party? That's the place where they changed the constitution so that Xi basically now is leader for life, as I understand it. Yeah. So he changed the rule, uh, I think five years ago, that says the president of the country, the head of the government, could stay on for more than two terms. So that was the change in the constitution. There was never a rule in the charter of the CCP that said the secretary general cannot stay on forever. So he could potentially now to be the head of the party and the head of the government forever if he wants. So that's the new situation we're in. He also broke a lot of norms in terms of leadership reshuffles. There's a rule about saying that if you are 68 or older, you cannot be elected to the top leadership again. He kept several of his key allies over that age limit in the Central Committee. And so I think he was willing to abandon some of even these for the appearance of legitimacy, of having rules and following the rules. That puts further pressure on him to deliver in other ways because he's even losing some of these what I call the salt and pepper. From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There was a famous scene where his predecessor was kind of escorted out of the Congress. Some people said that's because it was a health problem. Other people said it was a deliberate public humiliation. What was your reading of that moment? There are many, many theories about that. I don't think we will never know enough to say for sure. But I think two things are quite clear from just watching the footage. One is that the former president, Hu, did not want to leave. The two guys tried to drag him up. He did not want to leave. And there was a piece of paper under the red cover that he didn't want to see, and he was not allowed to see. And there's a high-resolution photo showing that when the guy who picked him up was holding that piece of paper, it seemed to be the list of the people who would be elected to the Central Committee. Was there something in the list of the names who got elected, who didn't like, and he, he wanted to make some protest of it? No one would really know until we have more information. I don't think that's by any stretch of imagination, he was ill and had to be taken out for health reasons. I totally don't buy that. Is it correct to say that one of the actions of this Congress was to really strengthen Xi Jinping's hand to bring in more of his allies and to eliminate his critics? Absolutely. I think there's a faction in the Chinese Communist Party from communist youth that used to be powerful. So the current leader of that faction is the Premier Li Keqiang, who's stepping down in the spring. And we don't see anyone else from that faction to be represented now at the Politburo Standing Committee. So everyone, virtually every single one of the Central Committee member is the Chinese president's man. And there's no woman. So there's quite little. And they're a little bit younger, aren't they? Some are younger, but some, I think there was a general who was like 72 years old, whose father was Xi's father's buddy, I guess. So they have like family connections or whatnot. But that general was in the Eastern Theater facing Taiwan, pretty influential. So we have older generations too. And I think age does not matter. Xi Jinping has some protégés who are pretty young, but they are very passionate about coming up with theories to legitimize his rules. (laughs) 
I don't think age of being a younger does not mean being more hopeful or more liberal-minded or more reformist. I think people should give up on that hope. Every single time there's a new leadership coming up, people would hope for some of them being better. People should just stop doing that. Yeah. Somebody said to me that you can think of the governing system as a series of protégés and mentors, not actual family by biology, but family by patronage and by working together and so forth. And it literally comes down into sort of a whole hierarchy of who's loyal to who and how they relate to each other, and then ultimately how they relate back to Xi Jinping. Right. It's always like that. But I think in the past, you would see two or three factions when they reach the top. You would see the top leadership being divided by maybe two or three groups. Now, everybody you can trace back to Xi Jinping. I remember when Zhang Jimen was in charge, there was sort of a Shanghai mafia. And my sense is that that's all been changed now. Yeah, I think all of them are gone. The last remaining one, I would say, was the communist youth, now represented by Premier Li Keqiang. And there was actually hope before the party congress, at least there's some in the West, were speculating that, you know, because the economy is doing so poorly, perhaps the communist youth faction would rise up. And because they are more practical, at least they care a little bit more on the margin. They care a little bit more about the economy. Maybe they're more practical. They would turn the ship around. That didn't happen either. And in fact, they were simply gone. So if you look at the Premier Li Keqiang now, he's just an ordinary Communist Party member. He's not in, even in the Central Committee. An ordinary Communist Party member being the Premier of the government for at least the next three months before he's gone. One of the things that I thought was striking, Speaker-designate McCarthy has said very clearly, they're going to create a select committee on China. I was very struck that in the new Chinese Communist Party plan, for building socialism with Chinese characteristics, they have five spheres, economic, political, cultural, social, and ecological advancement. And it strikes me that it would be really smart for this new select committee to kind of match up with those spheres and to realize that it can't just be military, it can't just be intelligence, but you have to understand the totality of the Chinese strategy and then measured against what will it require from the United States in order to overmatch that strategic goal. Does that make sense to you? I think it makes sense. And the way I see this question, at least, is that it's rooted in the fact that the U.S. and Chinese economies are so intertwined right now than 20 years ago. So the challenge China posed to the United States is not just military. It's not just economic. It's not just technology. It's all of those things <laughs> because we are so integrated in this way now. So the problem of tackling the China challenge now is very different if we were to tackle the China problem 20 years ago when China just joined the WTO. It was not even a problem to tackle. People were actually pretty romantic about that, right? So we were hoping for all sorts of better futures for China, although they did not turn out that way. So I think the China challenge is indeed has many dimensions and it would be wise for US leaders to think through them all together. I was one of those who thought, and I think it was clearly a misunderstanding of Deng Xiaoping's speeches on the Southern Tour, where I thought he was really communicating the need for a market-oriented system as a first step towards modernizing the whole society, when in retrospect, he was saying, no, no, we have to actually go to a market system to produce enough goodies to sustain the dictatorship, not to change it. And so I think almost nobody in the West understood that this was all a design to create a stronger dictatorship, 
not a first step towards a Western-style open society. I actually had some doubt about that because I remember when I graduated from college in 2006. So I won a little university medal where I went to college, and the person who gave me the medal, I remember the story very clearly for a very good theoretical reason here. Is that the guy who handed me the medal was the China's chief negotiator to join the WTO, Long Yongtu, and I remember I was not happy about it. I was like, "Oh, he's not popular in China. He was not popular in China because people complain that why are you sacrificing Chinese national interest so much so that China could join the WTO?" But people in China, I think the majority of the people in China that I know at the time were actually still hopeful. Despite the sacrifice of national interest, they were happy that China was joining the WTO so that we could become better. I think that's the reasoning still valid until the year around 2006. But then, of course, Hu Jintao came to power. I think he is the first Chinese president who really deviated from Deng Xiaoping's methodology of you know reforming and trying to work on a better future. He was the first one who actually started to crash freedom inside a very limited freedom. Space of civil society in China. And why do you think they made that pivot towards a more repressive regime? That's the point that actually the policy change index provided some insight. Because when we finished the project, we looked back and we saw that in the newspaper they made a huge pivot in propaganda before they made the huge pivot in policy. So the year before Hu Jintao launched into his harmonious society. Policy agenda. They started to talk about those harmonious society issues in the press. The reason they gave was that we have tried this market reform, very aggressive market reform, for you know nearly twenty years now, and we have come to a crossroad because we have seen a lot of social problems in the country. We have rising income inequality, we have regional disparity, and we have all sorts of housing issues and whatnot. So. <laughs> the CCP reached a ridiculous conclusion. They said, "So, because we have so many problems with markets, now we need government to step in to help." <laughs> I mean, we have heard these kind of talking points in the <laughs> U.S. liberals too. It's just in China, it's the more dramatic version. But they say, "We are the government. We are here to help." So now let's pull back from reform. Let's stop selling state-owned enterprises. You know, they could serve social goods. So they change all that. Market-oriented talking points in 2003, because they are afraid of some of the negative consequences they see as market reforms. Fascinating. But I want to thank you for joining me. Watching Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party is so important in the United States, and I think, you know, somebody pointed out the other day that there are 300,000 Chinese students in America, and about 300 American students in China. I'm afraid. That we just don't spend enough time and enough energy trying to understand what is, after all, one of the two or three most important countries in the world. So the work you're doing is a big part of that, and I think that the index you've created is fascinating. And I hope on occasion that we can get back together again, and you can continue to give us valuable insights. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Speaker, for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Weifang Zhang. You can learn more about China on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team 
at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR. The Motor Racing Network.